Thank you for tuning in. I'm very happy to introduce this conversation between myself and three intelligent, ambitious high school students. They are part of an organization called Youth Public Policy Institute, and they are part of the mental health chapter of this organization. And they reached out to me because I'm a professional in the field of psychology. And so we had a great conversation. They were well prepared. They asked me great questions that really got me thinking. We talked about what I get to do as a professional in psychology. We talked about my own research. We talked about research in general. We discussed stress, motivation, success, self-actualization, and I enjoyed it very much and I think you will too. for being here with us today. Um, so let's get right into it, I guess. So as a psychology professor, you know, what topics do you cover with your students? Mm. So I teach, the main psychology classes I teach are introduction to psychology, social psychology, and biological psychology. In introduction to psychology, you cover a wide variety of topics, including, you know, the history of psychology, research principles in psychology, a little bit about the brain in the intro class, just a very little bit, sensation and perception, conditioning, some of the cognitive faculties such as memory, also emotions, motivation. And then we, we also touch lightly on psychological disorders and treatments. So this is, those are some of the classes or course subjects covered in that course. And then in social psychology, we talk all about social dynamics and you know the dynamics in relationships the way in which we perceive each other stereotypes prejudice discrimination why we hurt each other why we help each other and then in biological psychology we talk a lot about the connections between mental activity and brain activity and we also talk about genetics and psychoactive substances and addiction and then the, the biological sides of the cognitive faculties, such as language, memory, rational thinking, even movement. So those are some of the general topics. I know that's many different things, but psychology is very broad. Right. Like you said, you know, I'm also taking a psychology course and I see that there's a lot of different topics that you incorporate, whether that's with the brain. Um, and then you also learn about researching techniques and methods and ethics, um, as well as just, you know, cognitive faculties that you were talking about. So exactly. there's a lot of stuff that you really have to know to be a psychology professor. So I was wondering how much research experience education is required to be where you are today? Mm. Well, I took my education as far as I could take it. So I, I ended up getting a PhD in psychology. And yet, if you want to be a professor at the college level, you at least need to get a master's degree, which as many people may know, is about two years after a bachelor's degree. So a bachelor's degree nowadays takes people around four and a half or five years typically, and then the master's degree will be about two more years. And then if you do a doctorate level degree, that's usually three or four more years beyond that. And, you know, to be totally honest and transparent, my graduate education was primarily about refining my skills, my critical thinking skills, my research skills. And then you really get very specific with graduate education. Like the farther you go in education, the more specific it gets. And so my specific um, expertise that I gained from graduate school was mainly about psychological disorders and treatments. And so I've learned so much since graduating. And the truth is that in order to teach all the classes I teach, I've had to literally read entire textbooks and make sure that I've in integrated all the knowledge that I need to, to have in my mind to be able to teach things seamlessly without feeling like I'm um, totally dependent on a textbook and giving people PowerPoint slides that are just full of information that I can't speak to for myself. So, so yeah, you know, there's a lot of education that goes into it. And once you graduate from whatever level of education you reach, in a way, honestly, the learning has just begun. There's so much more to learn at that point. 
Right. I agree. Um, most of your learning really comes after school through your applications and whatnot, all the things that you're involved in, yes. you know, to segue into that, you know, we wanted to know, you know, apart from teaching, uh, are you involved in anything else related to psychology? I am. Yeah. I love teaching. It'll always be a part of my professional life. I also am a researcher and the main area of research I've been focusing on lately is the topic of transformation or significant psychological change in people when there's like dramatic changes in the way they think about life in their habits in their emotional patterns and so like what factors catalyze those types of changes and what factors support those types of changes so that that's one other way i spend my time professionally is as a researcher and then i also work in the jail system and i the best description for what i do there is i'm an educator and a counselor so i i meet with people in jail sometimes one-on-one -on -one, most often in, in a small group type of setting and the the framework around what i do in there is basically i offer a class called personal development and so people you know the people who want to join me in that class and and we get you know really personal and really deep into that moment that they're at in their life you know many people in there are in at a rock bottom and they're really motivated to change their lifestyle or to overcome their addiction or to overcome lifelong habits or to shed bad toxic relationships so there's all these changes that people are trying to make and i have the honor to support people in that within the jail so that by the time they get out they're prepared to live differently yeah i kind of want to ask a question you know, that's pretty interesting how you uh like to go to jail and like counsel them so like do you like um is there like a kind of like a one thing led led to another meaning like first you wanted to research the the transformation of events and then like like um people that were in jail were kind of like a good example of that mm. or like like is there like a relationship between the two and why you do it that's a great question and the jail work actually came first so i could see someone getting into the jail because they're interested in transformation and, and the way people change but for me, it was actually the jail work that came first. And more and more what's happening is that colleges and especially community colleges, one of which I work at called Gavilan College, are recognizing the need to serve people who are in jail. And so they're starting to offer classes to people while they're in jail and then kind of help um, lay a path in front of them for higher education. So that was my route into the jail was I was already teaching psychology at Gavilan College. And then certain people recognized within me the qualities that, you know, are needed for someone to be doing that work. And the opportunity presented itself to me, which I'm like so grateful about because I love it so much. So, yeah, that was that was my path. And um, I'll just mention, too, for anyone who's listening, who's thinking that they might want to get into that line of work as well. Um, sometimes jails hire therapists to come in and work one-on-one -on -one with people and social workers also have the opportunity to serve this population. I work side by side with social workers. They're amazing people and social work is, is a great line of education and a, a very fulfilling work and just like a super practical way to support people. So yeah, as an educator, as a therapist, as a social worker, all of those um, are can be entry points into the jail system. That's very interesting. Um, I actually had a question about your research. Mm. Um, I know that today there's a lot of ethics and guidelines in place for conducting studies and such. Um, how do you make sure that you are following the guidelines and ethics, and at the same time you're also conducting a study that's effective? Mm. So the, the main thing is to be associated with an institution of some kind, because whether it's a university or 
some type of research organization. And so I've been associated with a particular university called Sophia University, which is in Palo Alto, California, and they have an ethics committee. So when you propose a study, it has to be approved by them first, and they are making themselves accountable for any, any problems, let's say, that happen in the research, which means that they're very careful to make sure that your research is ethically sound. Where it gets risky, where there are the most ethical questions is when you do experiments with people. And so far, my research has been more focused on doing surveys and interviews with people who have undergone this type of major change. And so the things that I've had to be careful about are basically asking about people's very sensitive personal experiences in a very skillful professional way. You know, for example, in, in the recent study I did, we interviewed people who, whose transformation was brought about by a traumatic experience. And so we interviewed them about this traumatic experience, which meant that we knew going into it, it was possible that we would be potentially leading people to remember some of the most scary images in their memory and that they could even be re-traumatized by that. So we just had to be very careful with the way we asked questions. We you know, were just sure not to be pushy about anything. And we had uh, psychotherapists on hand ready to recommend to anybody who needed that support. So ultimately, you know, as long as you're getting consent and you're being completely forthcoming about what this person is going to experience in the study, then you really, that, that's the primary guideline. Just be very detailed with your informed consent and let people choose whether they want to participate and then have some, some kind of safety nets in place if there are risks. And in the case that something does go wrong, what are the consequences for you, the researcher? Mm. Well, interestingly, a lot of the responsibility falls on the ethics committee. So that's why the researcher always wants to be associated with an ethics committee, because they're the group of people who say, you know, we approved this. So as long as the researcher actually did what they said they were going to do and what was actually approved, then the consequences really do fall on the ethics committee. And worst case scenario, they could lose their, it's not a licensing, but it's like an accreditation that an ethics committee has in association with the university. So worst case scenario, you would see the, the disintegration of an, of an organization if it was bad enough. And then a researcher can basically like never be approved again to do research. And if it's, if it's a situation where you have medical doctors or psychiatrists and they're administering some type of treatment and then they do it, something unethical, let's say like they administer a dose much higher than, than was planned, they could lose their medical license. So yeah, it could be dire consequences. Right. Just a final question about research. Mm -hmm. um, in the past, obviously, as we continue to move on, um, ethical guidelines increase, they get better and better over time. And a lot of key experiments and studies, um, I think one, especially in classical conditioning, uh, you know, a lot of studies, they have been unethical. Yeah. Um, do you think this unethical nature of these experiments nullifies the findings in any way, now that mm -hmm. we know what is ethical and what isn't? It's a very good question. To be totally honest, I don't think they nullify the findings. So for example, I think I know what experiment you're thinking of related to classical conditioning when they basically traumatized a one-year-old boy named Little Albert. And the fact that that was unethical doesn't undermine the evidence that the study generated. We do understand very clearly partly thanks to that experiment, that you can create this intense association between stimuli and a young child. So the findings are just as valid, even though the experiment was unethical. 
So and it doesn't nullify the findings, in my opinion, as long as the, you know, the, the research method was, was sound, but it does undermine the credibility of the researchers, in my opinion. So, and it's tricky, you know, because sometimes you, you have to walk a fine line in order to, to produce interesting findings, you know, like people, for example, have demonstrated that you can implant a memory in someone's mind and that's really messing with someone's mind so in the research study that i'm thinking of where memory researchers literally made this guy believe that he had this experience of getting lost in a shopping mall which never happened they really kind of gaslit him they messed with his mind they they made him think he had an experience that he never really had and that could lead to him like not really trusting his own mind and that's a very serious thing but it is very interesting to know that we can implant memories, that, that that's a feature of memory, you know, that it's sometimes difficult to distinguish from imagination. So that's a very interesting finding, but it is questionable ethically to have done that. So this is an example of that fine line, you know, and if ever you're trying to walk that fine line, I think the safeguard is that you always have like an extensive debriefing process where you process with the person what they just went through, how they were just deceived, and you offer them all the support they need to kind of recover from the study. Yeah, um, that is um, extremely interesting. So I guess now we can talk a bit about um, uh, uh, motivation. Mm. So what exactly are the elements of motivation from um, a more psychological perspective? Mm. Sorry. Good question. I, I love thinking about motivation. And I, I honestly think that understanding the psychology of motivation can actually increase motivation. So people who feel like they're unmotivated should, should look into it, you know, should look into the, what's understood in psychology. And some of the elements of motivation include, so when you look at highly motivated people, you see these consistent features in them. Number one, they are optimistic. That's one feature of motivation. This commitment to interpret failures, not as failures, but lessons and setbacks as just like one, one guy I know in jail, who's this very wise man, he always says like a minor setback for a major comeback. That's an optimistic attitude. And that keeps people motivated. Of course, I know this is, this is self-evident. You know, whenever we think pessimistically, it's kind of a buzzkill. It kind of extinguishes our fire for something when we allow our mind to, to go down this train of thought that is very negative where we're predicting bad outcomes. So optimism is one thing. Um, personal drive is another. We always have to get to the point where if we're truly motivated, we can't be depending on someone else to try and motivate us. You know, the person, let's say an, an Olympic athlete can't always depend on their coach to like get them up to go train. That has to be integrated within. So the source of motivation has to be internalized. That's another big factor. And then initiative is another big one. And initiative is basically your readiness to act, your willingness to act immediately and not just think about your goals, but actually do something toward those goals. Even if the action is relatively insignificant, but it's to basically not just stand in place, but to start walking toward your goal. And there's, there's this quote that like sticks in my memory, which I like to share with my students. So if any of them listen to this video, they'll remember it. Um, there was this philosopher by the name of Alan Watts. And he said something that I think is the perfect explanation for initiative. Someone once asked him if he had any advice for aspiring writers because he's written a lot of books. And his answer was, stop aspiring and start writing. And just that right there is kind of really hits you. Stop 
thinking about it so much, just start acting on it. So many of our aspirations can already be actions. And he went on to say this very eloquent quote, which was, so stop aspiring and start writing, right? Like you're a damn death row inmate and the governor's out of the country and there's no chance for a pardon, right? Like you're clinging to the edge of a cliff, white knuckles on your last breath and you have just one more thing to say. Like you're a bird flying over us and you can see everything. And for God's sake, tell us something that will save us from ourselves. Take a deep breath. Tell us your deepest, darkest secret so that we can wipe our brow and know we're not alone, right? Like you have a message from the king. That's the whole quote. And I just think about that often to have this sense of urgency toward accomplishing whatever it is we want to accomplish. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess on the topic of um, um, urgency, I think for most people, it can be hard to get that drive, right? Mm -hmm. Because um, oftentimes I think whenever we get um, overwhelmed by task, um, we tend to just like give up or procrastinate on it. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess I was just wondering like, how exactly does the brain react to that? Hmm. So there's a couple of things that come to my mind in response to that. One is most people expect motivation to lead to action. And sometimes it works like that but we tend to overlook the way that action can lead to motivation. If you kind of just in a way force yourself to do something, let's say a person is motivated to get physically fit. If they just wait around for the spirit to move them, for the motivation to just arise, to go exercise, it might not ever happen. But if they just do it regardless of whether they want to, if they just kind of make themselves do it, action, can ignite motivation. It builds momentum. It makes you feel proud of yourself that you did it. So that's, I think, really important for, for when people are just thinking through this, like how, how do I get myself to do something? How do I feel more motivated? Sometimes you just do it and then the motivation follows. And then it's a nice healthy cycle of action, motivation, action, motivation, and they both build and then the momentum leads to new habits. Regarding how the brain reacts to this, so even in what I just said, make yourself do something, we, we are starting to talk about discipline and self-control. And there is a region of the brain that's very much associated with this ability which is the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex, it houses many functions, including rational thinking, impulse control. So like not doing what you feel like doing or not saying what you feel like saying. Foresight, being able to predict the consequences of your actions and emotion regulation. And so I like to think of discipline as basically you doing what you don't feel like doing, but know that you want to have done. You can foresee, I'll be happy that I did this. Or not doing what you want to do, what you're tempted to do, but know that you'll regret. So that ability to foresee, like thanks to the prefrontal cortex, the ability to foresee how I'm going to feel about the action I'm about to take can really be leveraged to improve self-control. You can kind of like connect with your future self in a way and um, aim to work with the wishes of your future self. So given that this is largely um, associated with the prefrontal cortex, I think it's very helpful to understand what conditions suppress prefrontal cortex activity because the conditions that do this essentially weaken the will. And there's four main conditions that can suppress the prefrontal cortex activity, which are when you're really hungry and your blood sugar is dipping, when you're very tired and so sleep deprived, when you are 
upset or emotionally really triggered and when you are intoxicated. Um, and of course, different substances affect you differently, but generally speaking, um, and especially with alcohol, intoxication suppresses the prefrontal cortex. And so watching, basically building a lifestyle and behavioral patterns that do not result in you being hungry often, tired often, or really upset or intoxicated often is super important for discipline and motivation because you keep that part of the brain that you really need to be online, you keep it online. Yeah, that's awesome. And like, I guess kind of um, adding on to that, right? It's like, um, if you want to develop a um, healthy habit via um, a discipline, right? Like, mm -hmm. you, like you have to constantly um, have that drive to, to, um, to c continuously like repeat that action, right? And um, I think, you know, um, as long as you have that um, motivation and drive to do that, then um, you can definitely build that habit. Exactly. And, and it, like I said, it really works like a cycle. You know, it, it's, it's very rewarding discipline. You know, you feel really good about yourself and people tend to start making better decisions in every area of their life when they're exercising discipline, even in one main area. So just in general, the practice of discipline, whether it's very specific to one goal or more general, it just really improves our quality of life and the, the cycle of discipline or yeah, action and motivation builds pretty quickly. And that's how habits form. Yeah. I kind of had a question like about the action leading to motivation, which leads to action leads to motivation, kind of that. So like um, you kind of highlight that importance of initiative as a, as a, like a presence of urgency that like we're not here forever, that like we, that we need to have the presence of mind that we are soon not going to be in this world, right? So like how do you think like we can change that perspective? Because for me, it's like I always, sometimes I think like, like it's not a very micro level for like schoolwork, right? I think, okay, I'll do it. I have like time to do it. But then I think that the way I think about homework can also be seen to like a macro perspective of how I think about like life itself. And like, for me, I guess personally, it's kind of a personal question, but I guess in general, like how do you shift that perspective to have like parents presence to do it like now? That right. right. I think that this is, partly something that just comes with life experience, something that can only be learned on the deepest levels by experiencing death, not yourself obviously, but around you. And that can be something like even a pet dying or especially when a loved one dies or if, you know, a young person dies, someone who's your own age, like part of the, one of the signature features of development during teenage years is a sense of invincibility. And that easily translates as like, you know, my own death being like the farthest thing from my mind. And often many teenagers will act in ways that show that they, they think they can defy death and so they'll take crazy risks and stuff like that so to some degree i feel like it's just a developmental process the the coming to awareness of of this fact of the very finite nature of our existence and just how fast time passes so that's part of it but i think even already now you can simply make it a point of reflection and I know that can sound like, why would I want to think about that? Why would I want to think about death? Why would I want to think about the, the limited amount of time I have left? But what everyone tends to find is that if you kind of think about it in the right way, it's very life enhancing and it brings about that urgency. And so whether it's the end of your life or just simply the end of an experience that you're having, even let's say high school, 
you can foresee the end. It's coming very soon. And so just to keep to, to keep that in mind and let the awareness of the near end affect the way you engage with the process. And I think it just it just reminds you that it's precious because it's soon going to be over. It's a it's very limited amount of time you have left. And so this is your one chance to get the most out of it. So yeah, whether it's just life in general or a specific stage you're in or an experience you're having, just being aware of the the end of it, I think enhances the process of it. Yeah. Um like um I guess on that note, you know, um, re- regarding the topic of um, um, urgency, right? Like, like personally, I oftentimes experience a, a motivational high, you know? Um, it's like, I just want to work, you know? Um, because I know that this is a period of time where I'm going to be the most productive, right? So I, um, I'm going to want to make the most out of it. Um, is there like an explanation for that? Mm. I can relate, first of all, and I can relate to the opposite of that too. And I think this is somewhat personal. I'm not necessarily drawing on like the general consensus in psychology, but personally, I embrace the, um, I would think, I almost think of it like the inhale and the exhale of productivity, where I would describe the inhale as with the word receptivity and the exhale with the word productivity. And I think that with any endeavor, whether it's for work, school, or just a creative endeavor, there's something to the inhale where you really withdraw from the process. You take a break, you relax, you take your mind off of it. And often it's in those moments that you're receptive to insight or some really good idea that you can apply. And then, like you said, comes the motivational high. And I think it's healthy to just go, I mean, again, speaking personally, to go full force, to dive in, to be super productive, to stay up a little bit too late, to type so many words or whatever it is you're doing and just be super productive, but then take a nice equal opposite dynamic here of like inhaling and relaxing and decompressing and that's how i think we can actually sustain those motivational highs when a person because as you may know like as you do know the motivational highs are definitely an expenditure of energy we're definitely like using our energy stores when we're super productive and we can sustain that if and only if we also are replenishing those stores with a nice equal opposite inhale, receptivity, decompression, and relaxation. So yeah, ride those heads and just make sure that you're, you're sustaining them by also inhaling and being receptive and relaxed. Yeah. Um, actually, I had a question kind of, um, what you said previously, like the question before, you said talked about um, how like a death or something can make you have that like presence in mind that like our, our life, life is coming like to an end soon so like did you find that like within like your transformational studies mm. that like within people like when that happened like like they gained their presence of mind or they became super successful I don't know like something like that such a good question and the answer is yes I found it and I was definitely not the first to find this connection and so there's um, like literature based on this exact connection, the way that the death of a loved one causes people to change significantly. And what it tends to do is it stops people in their tracks, gets them reflecting on what is really most important to them in life. And once that becomes clear, then you tend to see a much more intentionally channeled motivation, if that makes sense. Like we don't, people who really have this presence of mind, they tend not to waste a bunch of time, which doesn't mean that they're always being productive. It just means that they're living in a much more intentional way. And so, yes, that is a strong connection 
the way that the experience of, of losing a loved one causes changes in people that can only be described as personal growth. Mm, right. Um, kind of like a little unrelated to like, um, on a more personal note, but I, I'm sure this applies to everybody, right? So like, um, I guess like sometimes, I guess kind of relates to like, I guess like for me personally, I don't have that presence of like urgency. So like it even comes down to the point where like one day, like, like I guess a couple weeks ago, I woke up at like 5 a.m., I did a bunch of work and then I went to school and I was like super ahead. I felt really good after it. So then like, I guess like, like, but I didn't do it again the next day or the next day after that, which is like kind of like weird though, because I felt like very good about it. And you would think that I would repeat things that I felt good about, mm. but I didn't. So I'm like, it's like kind of like weird for me. Cause like every day I'll be like, okay, I'll wake up 5am and I'll do the same thing again. And then, I just don't do it for some reason. And I mm. think it's like, um, and I guess like, I'm just saying like a personal example. I'm sure this applies to like um, every, like most high schoolers and this kind of thing. So like, so even though we know it feels good at the end, like why do we not do it anyway? If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. I, you're right that many people can relate to this who are in high school and beyond. And, you know, there could be many factors, but I would say that, Sometimes I think it's perfectly okay to embrace that, embrace the moments when you don't have a super strong impulse to be productive, especially when you were just being extremely productive. And so to not always interpret um, days or moments when you're like, don't feel like doing much, to not always interpret that as laziness, but maybe interpreting it as like, a much needed relaxation that is ultimately contributing to my ability to be productive. Now, this could all easily be used as a way to just, as like an excuse, as a rationalization to justify lazy behavior because laziness is a real thing, of course. So, you know, but but I would say that sometimes there, there needs to be days like that where you don't wake up super early and get as, as ahead as possible. And yet, you know, if you if you do want to be doing that more often, you can kind of think of it as you are like an analogy I like is if water has always been running down the same path of a mountain every time it rains for years, then it will continue to do that, even if that's not necessarily like the most efficient path to take to the bottom it's just the path of least resistance it's the path that it's always been taking so sometimes people are working against the current of their default mode of the path that has already been carved and they just kind of slip in to this mode of behavior that they've simply just gotten used to so if you find that if you feel like that's the case and you, and you really want to establish a new default mode or an ability to be productive more often, then I would just say to really exercise the, the self-discipline and those four conditions of, again, being tired, hungry, upset, or intoxicated, preventing those as much as possible, being really clear on the why behind the what. I think that's super important. Like, why is this meaningful, this task that you're doing? So the why behind the what is a big part of motivation too. Those are my thoughts on that very good question. So on the topic of initiative, um, a lot of times we actually find ourselves really wanting to do something and take action, but a lot of restrictions will force us to not do it, whether this be with ourselves, within our own minds or with the environment. So my question is, are there any adverse effects to not acting on this drive or initiative that you have? Hmm. Yeah, what an interesting question. I mean, I think the, the main adverse effect from that is falling short of what's possible for yourself. And this is an answer to a slightly different question, but I think it relates enough. One thing I've learned especially in my like adult life, my professional life, is the importance of collaboration. 
of working with people and not always trying to accomplish things on your own. And so there's a time and place for that too, of course, but like with, with, with projects or shared goals, working with people is so extremely helpful because you, for, for reasons that we all understand, the way we hold each other accountable, the way one person can be optimistic while the other one's being pessimistic or while one person can kind of share their energy with the other who doesn't feel like working out today or doing their homework right now. So I just think having a partnership or a team of collaborators is extremely helpful and it, and it helps us take initiative. It puts a healthy pressure on us to know like someone's waiting for me to finish this task so that they can do their part and, and they're excited about it. So that's another factor here that we should all, we should acknowledge is just how motivating it can be when you're working in collaboration with others. Yeah, for sure. And um, I guess now we can talk about the biggest um, motivator, which is stress. Mm. So um, I guess to an extent, um, stress is like um, 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 uh, um, a supply um, um, and demand curve in an economic model because mm. you would need um, resources to deal with stress but you would also need a good amount of stress in order to grow. So I guess, how can you reach that um, equilibrium point between the amount of resources and the demand for stress? Mm. The way you, the way you've, um, my phone's off, but my computer got a call. Um, the way you framed stress there is very accurate the supply and demand idea, the idea that stress is very much about resources being used to and, and spent to um, meet a demand. And so for some, you can think of two extremes. One person has way too many demands, there's way too much pressure and not enough resources and the other extreme being someone who has no pressure and all the resources in the world. So neither one is ideal as you're, as you're implying because we need enough resources. So the person who's overwhelmed either needs to reduce the demands or increase the resources and probably both. The person who is just kind of spoiled with all the resources they could ever want and has no pressure, no one's challenging them they're not challenging themselves that person is simply not going to grow neither person in that situation is going to experience growth one is going to be experiencing too much ease and the other one's going to be experiencing too much pressure so i really think that a good analogy is the way that when you when you lift weights there's a precise amount of weight that you can lift if you have a goal of let's say lifting, bench pressing something 10 times, there's an exact amount of weight that you can do 10 times. And if you go to that exact amount of weight, that's what will improve your strength most efficiently. So that is the same exact principle that can be applied to handling stress in life. There is really an exact amount, I think, of pressure or level of demands that a person can handle without being overwhelmed, but is being challenged in order to handle that. There's like this threshold and you can use the terms, people often use the terms, you stress and distress. And distress is the bad kind, it's when it's overwhelming. You stress is good stress. It's the type of stress that makes you grow. And, and the sense that you have when you, when you have just the right amount of challenges is like, I got this. It's challenging. It's, it's going to require the best of me, but I can do it. And the sense that you have when you're experiencing distress is like, this is too much. I can't handle this. And so when that's the case, again, you have to either reduce demands and or increase resources. 
And on the other hand, when there's not enough pressure, then you might have to increase demands or I w it sounds strange to say, but like reduce resources. And what I mean by that is take the example of um, a, a kid who's in a family who's rich and the, and the parents just pay for everything for them. You want to go out? Sure, I got you. You want a car? I'll buy it for you. And they almost put too many resources in the person's life to where the person never has to feel the pressure to draw upon their own resources or to build up their own resources. So in that case, you know, the the person supplying all the resources would actually do the person the the individual a favor by putting more pressure on them or not letting them you know, lean on someone else's resources all the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. hundred um, percent. Yeah. Cause we're kind of talking about that stress and demand thing, how it's always, you're kind of always like, I guess in the same way you're lifting is like how you're always like working towards like your best. And you can go to the point, like uh, I was actually watching one of your videos, like kind of in preparation for this. And you talked about self-actualization and like um kind of like that that tree of needs and then like so then like kind of like kind of like segueing into that like um how do you like so like let's say you do find that like perfect stress and demand you're constantly pushing yourself in a great way how do you like um is that the same thing as like being successful like is being successful effectively the same as self-actualization and by like success, I don't necessarily mean like by career or like finances, like just as a, as a whole, like, is there exactly like a distinguishable difference between the two? And also like, just like a quick other one. Um, if you could like, what, like, if there's anything you could do, like, what would you do, what would you do to increase the amount of like, the increased amount of self-actualized people in our world right now? that makes sense so yeah those are my two questions i love both of those questions so to the first one there's definitely a form of success that is not self-actualization but rather is conformity conformity to other people's idea of success and those people you know there's plenty of examples of people who achieve a version of success that they never really like personally subscribed to they just conformed to it to satisfy other people whether it was their parents or their peers or the world at large so there is definitely a form of success that is not equivalent to self-actualization but if you define success differently and if you define it as um, if you let the person define it then i would make it equivalent then i would say that success is to reach self-actualization and, you know, for people who might not be familiar with what that concept is, who are listening right now, self-actualization is defined as this ongoing process of actualizing your potentials and your talents and your capacities and fulfilling what you feel like is your mission and accepting your own nature. And then there's one other element, which is the psychologist describes it as in an unceasing trend toward unity. So those four things, which again are actualizing potential, um, fulfilling your mission in life, whatever you feel like that is in your current phase of life, um, accepting yourself, and then not being fragmented within yourself, not rejecting anything about yourself, but feeling whole unto yourself. That is what self-actualization is about. And if a person is doing that, they are successful. And sometimes that will also translate to society's idea of success, conventional success of financial stability, being well-known, having a lot of leverage in the world, ranking high in whatever industry you're in. So there's nothing about that that is against self-actualization, but as long as it's something that the person has really personally like subscribed to, like that's, that's their version of fulfilling their destiny, fulfilling their mission. So yeah, those are my thoughts on 
success and self-actualization. And then just to say too, on that note, remembering that the ongoing process, self-actualization is an ongoing process. And so success looks different at different phases of life and what potentials we can possibly actualize are very different at different phases of life. So now, you know, like right now I'm 34 and so I'm super active in my career, but when I'm 94, it might, it's going to look very, very different. And so just remembering that the question is really what can blossom in me in this phase of my life? And is that happening? And how can I continue to make that happen? And then on the note of how we can make that happen for more people, there's a lot I would say about this. And not everyone agrees with with this idea, but I do see value in some type of universal basic income. And again, I'm aware that some people are like, what? Are you a socialist or something? But not at all. Like, I think Andrew Yang is, is the most articulate proponent of this. And the way he describes it is if you were to provide what he calls a freedom dividend or a thousand dollars a month to every U.S. adult, you would basically just stimulate capitalism. It would be like capitalism that doesn't start at zero. But aside from that, from markets and economics, there's just, in my opinion, being alive should guarantee that your needs are met. And many people right away think, well, there's just going to be a bunch of mooches who want the government to take care of them. But when you understand psychology, you see that that's not what tends to happen. There might be some exceptions where that's the case. But usually, if people's most basic needs are met, new motivations arise. You see much less addiction you see much less criminal behavior and you see much more productivity and participation in society when people are not desperate and in poverty. So I, I'm, that's something I feel very passionate about is the earth is not resource depleted. There is enough for everybody. So the fact that people don't have access to resources is not because the planet is running dry on them. It's because of the way we've built our society. So if we were to just give a very, very basic level um, of needs being met for everybody, I think that's the first step in promoting self-actualization in more people. You know, the just like a tiny house and access to food, at least. And then, and then safety, that's the next one. Just making sure that we don't create environments where there's just crime everywhere and violence everywhere, which is very much exaggerated by poverty and desperation. So taking care of that on a societal level, I think will work wonders. And then one more big thing is promoting connection between people creating more opportunities for people to form relationships with each other. There's so, I mean, I'm sure you have a sense, everyone gets it that so many people in the world feel isolated and lonely and they don't feel seen. And so that, that is a very basic need, like in this hierarchy of needs, it's the need for love and belonging. And so we've definitely obviously um, shifted away from what was once natural for people, which was to live in community. And so I'm not saying that everyone shouldn't live in their own apartment or their own house. Boundaries like that are healthy, but just to create more opportunities for connection that happens spontaneously. And whatever that would look like, we could all be creative and think of how we could do that. But I think that's the need that we could meet better as opportunities for people to connect and form relationships in a really satisfying way. And then the last thing I would add is just more education. I think education is a, a huge driver for self-actualization. People become aware of their own 
qualities and talents through education. And they, of course, learn about psychology and they learn about what it takes to self-actualize. So those are, those are my main bullet point answers. Wow, yeah. Um, so kind of like, um, kind of like a wrap the podcast up with like a final question based on what you just said. So what kind of like you're saying, um, like kind of like self-actualization can be kind of said like as kind of like our potential, like that's our potential. So kind of does like kind of like our, do you think our capitalistic society kind of wastes a lot more potential than gain? And also like, do you think of allowing our potential to even go to waste in the first place is an inherently like unethical thing to do? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And like, I guess like a lot of questions, but um, does, does like a socialist society, like socialist society, which would mitigate the people who are in poverty, allow them to fulfill this full potential to go into self-actualization as you like you said before so like mm. like what are your thoughts on like that mm. so it's it's an interesting idea whether wasting potential is unethical i like that that that's thought-provoking to me i haven't exactly thought about it in that way but there's something to that yeah and i do think that much potential is being wasted even yeah just because because of this because of the fact that some of the things that make tremendous amounts of money are meaningless they really don't matter that much so when you have brilliant minds investing all of their time and energy into uh, like making people buy more beer for example that's arguably maybe not the best application of a brilliant mind when there are so many other issues that matter much more than how do I get people to buy more six packs as one example. So, so I do think because, um, you know, the capitalist capitalistic market, not just capitalizes on like what people need and desire, but it literally conditions people to think they need and desire something. And they condition people to think that they need and desire things that are ultimately not satisfying. So when people finally do make enough money to buy that car that they've been conditioned to buy, they just have this initially subtle, but eventually very significant sense of like, this didn't make me as happy as I thought it was gonna make me. And it's like nothing wrong with buying cool cars. That's all good. I think people should if they want to. Absolutely. Just as long as there's no um, misleading promises that that's going to give you a deep sense of fulfillment in life. So, so yeah. Um, and then regarding like a socialist society, sometimes I think that there, there will always be big disparities between rich and poor people. That will, I think, always be the case. And I think that's okay to some degree. In my opinion, the problem is the degree to which there's a disparity. There's people who have forever money, like money ain't a thing at all for the next 10 generations. And then there's people who have less than zero. And so if like this is the ceiling of, of access to resources and this is the floor, my personal, what I advocate is that we just do this. Just a little bit of a heightening of the floor and a little bit of the lowering of the ceiling. And that will still lead to like significant disparity between the people who work hard and earn a very lavish livelihood, which is cool. But again, it's just how extreme that discrepancy is that to me is very problematic. And there's a lot of symptoms in society that are results of that. And again, just everything we just talked about with the hierarchy of needs, if you were to heighten that floor just a little bit, I think those people who are uplifted by easier access to resources would ultimately contribute more and and participate more in society. 
Wow, yeah, that's very interesting. And I think it just serves as another reminder of how far the scope of psychology goes. Mm. We see how it's involved in politics. We see how it's involved in a lot of other you know, forms of our own life. Um, so to wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like to say to our audience? Well, honestly, I would say that to someone who's still listening, I thank you very much. And the fact that you can um, pay attention to a long form conversation like this and think about these ideas is just a really good sign, you know, for where you're at, given that there are so many forces that are competing for your attention and that people's attention spans are getting like smaller and smaller. So thank you very much for listening. And yeah, it's like my, my sincerest hope that what we've talked about today touches people's lives and supports people and thank you three like such a great job hosting this great questions so thoughtful really appreciate it well thank you for coming on and we really appreciate it and um yeah it gave us a lot to think about um so yeah thank you you're welcome